Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. A new documentary, Jack and Yaya, looks at the loving friendship between Jack, a trans man, and Yaya, a trans woman. Today, City Lights producer Summer Evans talks with Yaya and the filmmaker Mary Huey. An instant summertime classic arrived in 1967 when the legendary Otis Redding landed his first Billboard number one single with Sitting on the Dock of the Bay. Redding's daughter, Carla Redding Andrews, collaborated with Atlanta illustrator Caitlin Shea O'Connor to create a children's book based on the song's lyrics. We'll hear about a little kitten who leaves his home in Georgia headed for the Frisco Bay later this hour. First, we're off to the High Museum. Alexander Calder and Pablo Picasso are two of the most important figures in the history of 20th century art. The touring exhibition Calder Picasso debuted at the Picasso Museum in Paris and will be on view in Atlanta at the High Museum of Art through September 19th. Claudia Einicke is the High Museum Curator of European Art She's with us now via Zoom. Claudia, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. It's always a pleasure to be talking with you. Now, with more than 100 paintings, sculptures, and works on paper in this show by Calder and Picasso, this is a huge get for the high. How did that come to be? The exhibition, as you mentioned, was first put on in Paris and then went to Malaga, to the Musée Picasso in Malaga. And it was actually the Museum of Fine Arts Houston decided to reconstitute, as far as possible, the original exhibition. Of course, not surprisingly, we immediately said, yes, we'll, we'll make this happen, because this is a fantastic and unique Exhibition. Yes, we are so fortunate to have it here at the High. 
Pablo Picasso and Alexander Calder lived in Paris at the same time and vaguely knew each other, but they weren't friends. What can you tell us about their relationship or any stories from when their paths crossed? Yeah, they met for the first time in the early 1930s. Calder had moved to Paris not long before that as a really emerging artist was just starting out. Whereas Picasso by that time, Picasso is, I want to say, 17 years older. Picasso was already quite established and well-known as the leader of the avant-garde in Paris. So certainly Calder would have been very aware of Picasso and his work and his importance. The other way around, Calder attracted some attention, critical attention, with early works that he did in Paris, um, these wonderful, lively and dynamic wire figures, figures constructed out of wire. And then as a next step in Calder's career or work, he had an exhibition of some abstract work at a gallery in in Paris, and Picasso heard about it and came to the opening, but made sure that he came early in the afternoon so that he would be able to see the exhibition in person. So in other words, he must have been intrigued enough by what he had heard and seen about this young American artist to feel that uh, it's worth his while to, to check it out. So it was on that day that they met for the first time and we assume talked uh, with each other, but they never became friends or worked together or even against each other directly. It was really more of a casual relationship. So there are some important meetings in person that have to do with art and exhibitions. But for the most part, most of their meetings were of a social nature, you know, having lunch together with some other people, things like that. How was Calder's work an extension of Picasso's paintings? Both artists, well, were very innovative and creative throughout their careers. You know, with Picasso, we know he had a new style or a new subject, like every week, it seems, throughout his life. And Calder, who is a little less well-known, not well enough known, I think, also kept reinventing himself, as it were, or his work. So this exhibition is also not about, you know, one artist doing something and the other one imitating or being influenced or even inspired by it. It's really more general to say you have two giants of modernism and both of them really in their work defined and pushed forward what modernism is. In the exhibition, the main theme in which their work is brought together in this exhibition is different ways that each artist either explored and worked with the absence of space, the void, the absence of mass, and yet creating volume. So conceptually, there's that connection And visually, as you and all of our visitors will see, there are some very exciting and interesting parallels and similarities, although they are not necessarily inspired or influenced by the other. They both worked on the same artistic and aesthetic 
project and problems, and their works have something in common as well. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, talking with Claudia Einecke. She's the curator of European art at the High Museum. We're discussing the new exhibition, Calder Picasso. Claudia, from past conversations we've had, you've helped us learn more about works in dialogue with each other. Would you talk about how the works by Calder and Picasso in this show, how they are displayed? Yes, there are many instances where works are by Picasso or a work by Picasso and a work by Calder directly paired and juxtaposed, but not throughout. We might have, well, certainly in the same room, but even on the same wall, a Calder and two Picassos and another Calder, so that there are these groupings where we really see some visual connections directly. So you have a Calder mobile next to a Picasso painting, next to a Picasso sculpture, next to a Calder painting. So there's this wonderful visual diversity and dynamic in the galleries that I think people will really enjoy. How did Calder's mobiles change in style and movement throughout his life? Well, the earlier ones, they tend to be smaller, simpler in the sense that you just have several horizontals and from those you have objects or shapes hanging and then the later ones they become immensely complex they droop down almost to the floor they are not symmetrical necessarily they have different shapes of discs not round at all but discs that are suspended from the wires He works more with sometimes all black and another time with different colors. The arrangement of the elements of the mobiles becomes more complex and the balancing act that they perform becomes much more complex. It's it's really amazing to see. It's like, how did he come up with it? (laughs) Calder sculptures of people are whimsical in the way a figure's mouth is open, or the positioning of their limbs. Was he deliberately trying to convey humor or playfulness? Absolutely, because the first things that he did with those figures, he created a circus scene, and he would actually perform those circuses for an audience. He would move them around, and he would animate his figures and have them perform. And while I don't think it was necessarily like a, like a Punch and Judy show, <laughs> but certainly the effect would have been playful. I mean, it's kind of interesting to think in the 1920s, you know, to have these kinds of performances. But it is, of course, the time of Dada and the surrealists and so on and so forth. That's where they fit in his works. Yeah. Many have called her and Picasso's works focus on the female body. How do the artists differ in their approach? Each ultimately dealt with the abstraction 
of the female form. Is that fair to say? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That is actually one of the themes in the exhibition because that kind of abstraction, the way the figure is abstracted and is shaped, has to do with taking away mass, three-dimensionality, and yet suggesting and conveying volume and solidity. The big difference to me in this exhibition is Calder, after those early wire figures, basically goes completely abstract. Yes. So the figure pretty much disappears, whereas with Picasso, as abstract as he gets, he never loses the figure. So he's always still figurative. There are several outstanding events you have in conjunction with this show. Can you talk about just a few of the highlights? Well, we have two major lectures by major scholars and contributors. The first one, which is, I think, shortly after the opening, is a conversation or rather a lecture, virtual lecture by Andrew Ma. And Andrew Ma is the curator for MFA Houston. So she will be able to talk about the exhibition because she's the one basically who's done the work of recreating the original exhibition. Then towards the end of the exhibition, we have a lecture by Pepe Carmel, who is a Picasso scholar. So he's going to talk about Picasso in the context of the exhibition. We have a lecture by Jet Pearl, who is a Calder Calder specialist. Claudia, may I share a personal story about Jack Pearl? Sure. My husband, Dom, loves Calder. I think Calder is Mm -hmm. his favorite artist. And we were visiting New York once. Maybe this was in the 80s. And outside of the Pearl Gallery is this wonderful Calder sidewalk, and he saw Don and me admiring it, and he invited us into the gallery and told us about the sidewalk as, in effect, Calder's payment for being able to stay upstairs of the gallery. That was the rent he contributed. Wow, that's great. He was so generous. I mean, clearly, we did not look like we were about to buy anything Mm -hmm. (laughs) in that gallery, but it was such a special moment. And if any of our listeners visit New York, I encourage them to go check out that sidewalk because, again, it conveys the joy and whimsy, the playfulness of the artist. Claudia Einicke, thank you so much for taking time out from installing this exhibition to speak with us about Calder and Picasso. Well, you're very welcome. And actually, I need to thank you because talking about wonderful works of art, wonderful artists like that, that's the best thing in the world for me as well. Claudia Einicke, the curator of European art at Atlanta's High Museum. The new Picasso Calder exhibit is on view through September 19th. 
You're listening to WABE at Latter's Choice for NPR. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Pride Month is coming to an end. Though you can continue this celebration by watching Jack and Yaya, a new documentary on the World Channel. The film looks at the loving friendship between Jack, a trans man, and Yaya, a trans woman. City Lights producer Summer Evans recently spoke via Zoom with Yaya and the film's creator and co-director Mary Huey. Here, Yaya tells us how she and Jack first met. So Jack and I first met through our shared fence. I vaguely remember, but I do remember going up to the fence with my uncle and seeing him for the first time and just having this like weird instant connection we were like instantly inseparable and it's been that way pretty much ever since man and now you guys are in your 30s so this is 20 plus years later what do you believe initially bonded you two to become best friends so quickly i say it all the time i've said it in the documentary i i feel like our souls like they tell stories and and things of souls and, and having a soulmate that you'll find throughout your life or whatever. And, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a romantic soulmate. Like, I feel like our souls just kind of knew that we were supposed to be with each other. I guess to become who we were, I don't know, fate, whatever you want to call it. I feel like it was this magnetic force that just kept us there. We've had this connection before we knew what we were about to, the adventure we were about to go on. It just was there. Yeah. And Mary, how did you find out about Jack and Yaya? And when did you decide you should make a film about them? So Jack and I met when we had both just moved to Boston from separate places, but we were kind of in the same spot of not really knowing anybody in town. We had both just gotten our hearts broken. So we just ended up connecting through my, my Craigslist roommate. We ended up at a party together and we immediately were like, we're, we're going to have a lot of fun together. And we just kind of clicked right away, became best buds. And, you know, I think at some point, I can't remember what year it was, I went down for New Year's um, to Philadelphia when he was home visiting his family or the Philly area. And I met Yaya. I think Yaya actually picked me up from the train station. It was just kind of like a brief encounter, but it wasn't until, you know, many years later, I kind of started um, ruminating on this idea of there being something there, their, you know, their connection, their story. Um, I just kept hearing, you know, Jack would always tell me about what him and Yaya had been up to, all these amazing stories you know, I was just home for Christmas one night and I think it was, I can't remember if it was 2016 or 2017. 
And I just talked to Jack on the phone and I'm sure he told me some crazy story about what him and Yaya had been doing. And I just wrote down Jack and Yaya documentary. You know, I was now dating my partner, Jen Bagley, who's the co-director and the director of photography for the film, you know, and she had kind of that film background. And I called Jen later that night. and I was like, I think I've got this idea. And, you know, I have no film background. So I think she knew <laughs> kind of what I was getting us into. And she was like, oh yeah, we'll, we'll talk about it. And after a lot of conversations, we were like, all right, let's pursue a short film. And, and from there, we were just, we were off and just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Right. The whole premise of the documentary is about them coming into their own, a trans woman and a trans man. But the focal point is their friendship. Why did you want to focus on this connection and the bond that they had with one another in the documentary? I think if you see Jack and Yaya together, you get it. <laughs> you know, like there's just this charisma and this connection between the two of them that really is kind of unrivaled by any kind of bond that I've ever seen. And really also the group of people that surrounds them, friends, family, their community is also really special. It's very different than any feeling that I've ever had stepping into that community. Um, there's just so much love and acceptance and humor. And so we knew this had to be captured. I think also, you know, it's just a beautiful representation of how within the LGBTQ plus community, we, we create our own family and it, you don't always have to be blood relatives to be family. So I think that's also a part of their story that I, I really love. So Yaya, before you came into your own as a trans woman, you started out in drag, which eventually grew to dressing in drag every day, even outside of performing. At what point did you look in the mirror and think, I want to dress this way and be this person every day, 24 hours a day. It kind of happened instantly. I, I used to, I played before with stuff. I dabbled, you know, Halloween and everything. And that was just a holiday. That was an excuse when I started to do it. Like you played on Halloween and you ventured in, into things and you dabbled in your mom's closet or your aunts or your cousins or your sisters or someone's closet. Like I even went into Jack's mom's closet at two years old. And I kind of always like found myself going, gravitating towards this aspect. And when I found drag and I realized that it could happen on a daily basis, if, you know, I always found somewhere to perform or did anything, I realized pretty much straight away the first night I did it in this weird shake and go wig that matched my natural hair color. And I was like, I could do this. And then it was solidified when a trans woman got on stage. And I at first was confused. And I said, why is that woman performing? I thought it was for drag queens only. And they were like, well, she's trans. She's a drag queen too. She, that's who she is. And I was like, trans. And then boom, I went home and looked it up. And I found this whole world of these beautiful trans women performing in drag. And I was shocked and kind of nervous. It was like, I stumbled onto myself on the internet and I was like, this is me. I reached out to people that were in the community that were, you know, taking estrogen and doing those things. And I, I talked to them and I sought out the help I needed. And I found motherly connections within these trans women that pushed me into being who I am today. So both of your brothers, Justin and John, are gay. And in the film, John talks about his reaction to finding out that you're coming out as a trans woman. Can you just expand upon that reaction and what that was like for your brother to find this out? Yes. Yeah, so my brother, the middle one, is super protective. And we're all super close. 
he said to me the one night, he's like, I found what you, I, you're going to love this. I want to take you here. We went to this club bounce. It was in Westville. It was the only gay club in South Jersey, like especially near us at the time. I think there was one more in Atlantic City. We went and I saw them perform for the first time in the very next Thursday, because it was a competition every Thursday night at this club. I went the net very next Thursday and I performed and it was over from there. And my brother started to get nervous. And he had said to me, he's like, I don't want you to be one of those girls on the street. Cause that's all we knew. That's all that was told to us is that once you're trans, your family kicks you out and you have to sell your body to make a living and you're stuck on the street because that's really what happens to most trans women and people that are in this LGBT community, especially back then when their families weren't as accepting because no one talked about it. No one educated anyone on it. And I looked at him and I said, well, you'll have to get over it because I am not going to do that. I'm not quitting my job and I work and they're going to have to keep me because I'll just then take them to court and I will pay (laughs) for everything and I will be fine. And to this day, regrets it. He was so mad when I talked about it. I was like, but John, it's, it's a, the point of this is that you had this feeling because that's all you were taught. And you, that, what you said to me didn't come from a hateful place or a hurtful place. It may have seemed that way at first because it, it shocked me. I didn't expect it at all, but it came from a place of fear. It came from, you know, the news saying another trans woman was murdered. And at that time too, we had the Craigslist murders with, where the trans women were being murdered right on off of Craigslist, right at that same, around the same time. So I said to him, I was like, we grew, you're my best friend and you're my biggest advocate and you fight for me. And I taught you that there's a different part of it because I knew that there was more to it than just what we were being told. And that's the biggest part of why I was so excited to do the documentary was that people hear and see certain things and they automatically assume that's it. That's all it is. There's no other, there's no other way around it. And there's more to it. There's more to us. There's, there's more to being authentic to yourself than what the other person thinks that means. Do you feel like there was a difference in the acceptance that maybe your brothers had when they came out as gay versus when you came out as a trans woman? Well, for me and John, we came out like multiple times. Like, like I came out as bisexual. That was literally my stepping stone to be able to see how my family would feel about me being gay. And none of them, they were like all shocked. Well, they acted shocked. My grandmom knew. And I know mom knew. My mom swore that I told me. She said, I picked out your name. I thought you were going to be a girl. And my grandmom said the same thing. She's like, we all did. And I was like, well, surprise. You know, I am. I just kept coming out. (laughs) And (laughs) And then Justin kind of hid it from us. So when he told me he was gay, he told me that. And he was living in Maryland at the time. And I got really pissed. I was mad. I was mad because I was genuinely terrified. I was like, I fought for you. You've never been hit. Like Justin was protected by me and John. Like my, anytime my dad wanted to yell at him or he was in trouble, Justin wasn't allowed to get hit. We could torture him and mess with him all he wanted, but no one could touch my little brother. Still to this day, no one can do that. So when he said he was gay and he's like, and I'm going on a date, I'm like, you don't even know the ins and outs of anything. I can't believe this. And, and he's like, I can't believe you're mad at me. I was like, I mean, I, I kind of thought that, but I didn't know. I just was hoping a, to have like a niece or a nephew or something. I pulled the mom thing. And then I was like, <laughs> and I was like, I mean, you can always adopt. I know because I'm going to have to, but 
I'm just scared for you. I don't want you to get beat up. I don't want anything to happen. He's like, okay, I won't go on random dates. I just left one on a, a houseboat. I was like, you went on a houseboat? What if he drove off to the sea? And I, <laughs> I was like, that's it. You're moving home. You're not doing it. You're moving home. And like, I have to drive four hours just to save you. So I, it, it was it's funny because when I look back and I remember how my family reacted and I was like, I would never do that. The moment my baby did it, I lost my shit. And then it made me realize that's all it was the whole time is it's this fear from all of the stuff we see on TV, the gay bashings, the trans murders, everything in the portrayal of us. That's where it differed. But once my family knew that I was safe, that they raised a tough woman, that they didn't have to worry about me, even though I don't know what made them think they would, they kind of just let us be happy. I mean, I didn't have a problem with Jack's family. They accepted it years and years and years ago and did not care and were open to everything and loved me no matter what. I mean, my family loved me no matter what. They just gave me a, a little bit of shit in the beginning and that was it. Yeah. No, I, and that to me was so refreshing about this documentary was just seeing all this acceptance and love and kindness and support that you don't really hear about in mainstream media or on social media. You usually hear like what you were saying, like you're kicked out. Yeah. And this was just like a completely different perspective that I haven't seen or heard. Yeah. I mean, you got to understand too, like for me, for anyone coming out and, and, and I mean, if you, if you know people that have, you know, like they don't understand it half the time. Anyway, we ourselves don't understand it. So it, sometimes it's, you got to put yourself in their shoes. Like you're, you're telling them this whole thing that they never even considered or thought about. And you're telling them this, and then you're expecting them to instantly accept you instantly understand every little detail without any pause or any fear or any like stress towards it. And that's also not fair to do to your family. I mean, I don't think family should kick them out or, or tell them no, or don't let them be themselves. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying if your family makes a mistake, if they mess up your pronouns, if they mess up anything in the very beginning, give them a break, talk to them, be like, it's all right. Like, let them know, be like, okay, we got to work on that. Like, that's what I would always say. My, even my little cousin, Sarah, she would correct my grandma really early like really, really early. And I, it, my heart melted every single time. And it was also really funny because here's the seven-year-old going, she, my mom, she, and my grandmom was like, I know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But I never once got mad about it. And I think people need to realize it's like now, like if, if my grandma was alive and she did it, I'd be like, Oh, come on lady, let's go get it together. Like I would mess with her. Like you kind of can judge if they're trying to wrong you or if they're genuinely just like, in the midst of a conversation and forget and mess up. And you just decide which one is which and go with it. And I feel like the world needs to know that that can happen. Yeah, yeah. It's just noticing is someone trying to put forth the effort or have they gave up and they're just like, eh, I'm gonna do what I want. And that makes all the difference. And I don't care what anybody says, you know the difference. You know the difference. It tells you, your gut tells you if you choose to ignore it and just be a jerk or just be like, whatever about it, 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 that's your choice, but you know, you know when someone's coming for you and when they're not. And you know when it's coming from a place of love or just literally, there's times where I've referring to Jack, I've said she as an accident and like, I'm talking too fast or telling a story too fast and boom, it comes out and I'm like, oh, what am I doing? And that's me, I'm, it's coming from me. And you know, I've never seen him as a girl. It's just some weird thing. My brain's just like, oh, gotcha. And I'm like, are you paying attention? Gotcha. You know, you just learn to grow from that. In the film, you talk about feeling the need to like pound makeup into your face, no matter where you went, even if it was just to the kitchen to cook. I'm doing that right now as we speak. 
There are a lot of similarities in the challenges that you and Jack both face when going out into the world, but what would you say are the differences? I feel like not that trans men don't have such a, I don't want to downplay any of the difficulties that trans men go through at all when I say this. So I don't want it to be taken that way, but it, I'm sure to someone it's going to be offensive. But with trans women, if we have the slightest bit of masculinity to our face or anything, like I panic going into the restroom thinking like someone's going to be worried and scared and say something. And I mean, not that Jack had to do the same thing. He went through something similar with restrooms, but I feel like for trans women, we are stared at and gawked at. I've walked into a room and people have looked at me and not thought anything. And then there's a day where I run out of the house to do something before I get to shower and shave and do all the things I need to do to feel more feminine. And I've been staring at from the moment I walked around the corner, you know, and got to, and people just like kind of looking. And I've, I've had people, even when I was working at Walmart for a little bit, and I had this couple that came into the restaurant two days before and left me no tip and were rude the entire time. And then so happens that they came down my line the very next day in Walmart, but started putting their stuff on the belt, saw me and took their stuff off the belt. And I'm not talking about like one or two things. I'm talking about all of their things. Mind you, it was a Sunday of the first of the month. I'll never forget it. And we were busy and they took all their stuff off just to go away. And I feel like had my name been changed at that time and it didn't say Christopher on my receipt and I had facial feminization and everything, I wouldn't have encountered that situation at all. A trans man, there's short men, there's tall men, there's like a trans man, if the testosterone takes properly, if they choose to go that route, and they go to the more, like they do that and they start to grow facial hair things. I feel like it's almost looked past a little bit because people don't think, oh, that could be a woman. They, as soon as they see facial hair, that's a man. They, they like shut it all off. I know not every trans person wants to transition. Every trans, not every trans person chooses to take testosterone or, or estrogen. But for those that are doing that, you know what I mean? It's just. Yeah. It, for you, like, it's like you have to present feminine to the utmost degree. Yes. All my stuttering, that's exactly what I was trying to get out. I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings or say anything that seems offensive. And I can feel Jack pinching me from Boston just in case. <laughs> and I'm like treading lightly here because I'm like, it, there is a fine line. And, and I know that there's a lot of gender fluid people that don't feel the need to be that way. And they're persecuted. And I legitimately give so much <laughs> praise to them because it's like, I would love to be able to go out and just not give a single flying, you know what, go about my business and live my life. Mm -hmm. So Mary, throughout the documentary, you interweave some old footage as well as showing like today and the gathering that they have in the summertime. What was that process like going through all of their childhood footage and trying to figure out where you wanted to plug it in into the documentary? I mean, first of all, it's just so incredible that we were able to access that footage. And I have to really give a shout out to Jack's mom, Joanne, who just really kindly shared this <laughs> precious home videos with us. She just sent us a DVD and said, look through it all. So we were able to just comb through the hours of footage um, and kind of try and pick out the scenes that we felt like really exemplified, you know, the, the bond between Jack and Yaya and just the general atmosphere at home. It was so fun to be able to look back on those videos and just see how much Jack and Yaya are exactly the same people they were at, you know, six and seven as they are now. 
Yeah. I thought it was very sweet when Jack is opening his presents at Christmas and he gets a doll. I, he was probably, what, eight, nine years old. And he's like, oh, this will be perfect for Yaya. <laughs> you know, and it just kind of shows that they already knew who each other was. And I feel like Jack and Yaya, when we were talking with them, told us about that video. And this was before we'd gotten hands up in the footage. And we were like, okay, I mean, I'm sure it can't be that on the nose. It can't be that perfect. And then we watched it and we were like, oh my gosh. You know, he didn't skip a beat too. He opens up that Barbie head and he's like, oh, she's going to love this. Moves on looking for his Urkel doll or whatever it was that he really wanted a basketball jersey. So it was just so amazing. And you're like, yep, they knew right from the beginning. So that that was just an incredible moment. It's one of my favorite moments too. Mm -hmm. Lastly, Yaya, I would just like to ask you, what advice would you give to people who are still hesitant to come out as a trans man or trans woman? I try to help people as much with this as I can because I, I do get a lot of questions. I get a lot of messages on Instagram and I tell them all the time, what does your gut say? What, what are you feeling? There's a part of it where it's like each person is, each transition is like a thumbprint. It's different. It's not the same. Not all of them are going to be easy. Not all of them are going to be extremely difficult, but they're all different. And I say, you know, this is what helped me. And I tell them I had a lot, I had a strong backing with my family where I knew they needed me as much as I needed them. And I tell people, if you have great friends and people that you can trust that you know for sure are going to stick by your side, go for it. If that's what you want, seek the help, talk to a doctor, someone in the field and make friends. Do not be afraid to make friends. Do some research for yourself and Pay attention to what your gut is telling you. That was Yaya, one of the stars of Mary Huey's new documentary, Jack and Yaya. The film is available to stream on the PBS app or at worldchannel.org as part of their series, America Reframed. More information will be on our website wabe.org slash City Lights. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The legendary Otis Redding landed his first Billboard number one single in 1967 with Sitting on the Dock of the Bay, and the song became an instant summertime classic. Redding's daughter, Carla Redding Andrews, collaborated with the Atlanta-based illustrator Caitlin Shea O'Connor to create a children's book based on the song's lyrics. Here, the musician's daughter talks about how the story unfolds. Well, it's amazing. The illustrations uh, with the, the little cat uh, just really kind of reflecting, you know, he'll be sitting to the evening come waiting to catch his dinner, I assume, a, a fish. And he's sitting in the morning sun and he'll be sitting there till the evening comes, which uh, is amazing. The the um, excitement it brings to the eyes of kids as they see the, this little cat as his journey travels through uh, sitting on the dock of the bay. That little cat traveled 2,000 miles from home. <laughs> yes, he did. 2,000 miles he roamed from home uh, just to make the dock his home, he says. Oh, Caitlin, you are from Atlanta. 
I am. Yes, I've been um, living in Atlanta pretty much all my life. <laughs> well, please tell us how you conceived these wonderful illustrations for Dock of the Bay. Uh, well, obviously, I had wonderful inspiration, which was the song itself, um, which was already such a great starting point for me. Um, so the publisher reached out and really the only requirement was to include the lyrics. Beyond that, total free reign to just create whatever story you want. So that was a little bit overwhelming, but it was mostly just exciting. Um, <sighs> but I just wanted to obviously try and honor the song. It's such a classic. I grew up with it. It has that nostalgia for me, but I wanted to really sit down and listen to the lyrics and try and understand the feeling and the meaning and relate that for kids. So in order to make that relatable, like kind of came up with this story about this little cat who is just trying to catch his dinner and just can't catch a break, but finally has a friend to show some kindness at the very end of the book. Because interestingly enough, I feel like the lyrics, you know, Growing up with it, everyone kind of has warm, fuzzy, happy feelings with it. But when I really listened to it, there's a bit of, you know, melancholy to it. So I wanted the story to have that bit of an arc where there was kind of a struggle. So that sort of just helped. The song really informed the story so much. Oh, yes. Well, Otis Redding's song and the lyrics he co-wrote with guitarist Steve Cropper mm -hmm. tell the story of a lonely man. Mm -hmm. It's sorrowful. I left my home in Georgia Headed for the Frisco Bay I've had nothing to live for It looked like nothing's gonna come my way So I'm just gonna sit on the dock of the bay Watching the tide roll away Sitting on a darker bay, wasting time. How do you make this sad tale into something hopeful for children? Well, I feel like the beauty of the song is that it, it kind of is a sandwich. It, it sort of obviously repeats itself at the end. It starts with, you know, sitting on sitting in the morning sun, but sitting until the evening comes. And it ends with that too. So that sort of helps you start with the beginning, a middle and an end. So it's going to end in a positive note. But yeah, it's like, you don't wanna, you don't wanna make this the saddest story ever, but I also know that children are so intuitive. So whether they're listening to this song or they're listening to a conversation where maybe they don't understand every single word, I feel like they understand the feeling. So I think they could, latch on to that feeling of loneliness or sadness. But of course, yeah, I wanted it to resolve. And I wanted it to resolve with the help of a friend, too. Yes. And Carla, I was fascinated to learn that your dad really was inspired by his setting. After his famous performance at the Monterey Pop Festival, he spent time in... Sausalito, California. Can you tell us more of the backstory? So yeah, you know, it's it's so interesting. And, and once I learned uh, exactly how dad came up with this song, um, you know, my mother told me that he was just wanting to have a place of, of melancholy and water and, and just really a feel-good environment to, to be different. 
he wanted to write something different is what, what he told my mom. So being there in Sausalito and the inspiration of the, the bay and the water, which my, my father loved water and loved to swim. I think, you know, that's how this whole thing came about. And he was looking for a song that wasn't necessarily about his normal lyrics, uh, the, the begging and the pleading and the man and the woman and the love. But this was more of a, of a journey of, of himself, of, of a person just trying to, to do what people tell them to do, but not able to do what people tell them to do. And so the Dock of the Bay, sometimes for us, it's sad. But then on the other side, it's a, it's a happy kind of thought that he knew he wanted to change course in his songwriting. And certainly beginning the song uh, in Sausalito certainly made this song very different from anything that he had ever written. Amazing. And is it true that the whistling we hear before the fade out was not a part of his original plan? It was not a part of his original plans. You know, there there are versions with with seagulls in the background, uh, birds kind of chirping in the background, and then uh, the ending part, which Dad never really got to hear the complete song finished. Uh, the whistling came in, and I think it's it's just perfect. The story goes that in the recording session he hadn't written the remainder of the lyrics or he forgot the lyrics. They were so fresh. And so he just whistled and the rest is history. Yeah. Well, he, I think he was trying to, according to mom and and Steve, you know, the trying to really cross mingle the lyrics and wasn't quite sure where to put each, each hook. And so the whistling came in and I, I, I just think it's such a real, real meaningful, powerful part of the song. Oh, it is brilliant. Caitlin, I read that in addition to being a cat and dog lover, you are also a whistler. Were you a whistler before you took on this project? Oh my God, I don't know where you read that or where I said that, but yes. Uh, can you give us a little rendition? Of course, only approximating what the great artist Redding could do, but can we hear a bit? Oh my gosh, wow. Um, sure, I can try, but now I'm smiling, so it's hard, but... Um... Oh my. You guys I am impressed. I believe it's all on command. <laughs> that was beautiful, really. Bravo, bravo. In the previous book set to Otis Redding's song Respect, the illustrations show empowerment to young children of color. We see astronauts and doctors and firefighters. Is there a direct message to black and brown children in the dock of the bay? I think, you know, kids today are, are, are just kind of over figuring on color so much. And people are people. And I think this little girl and this little cat in this book 
they could have been any color, brown, pink, whatever. And I think kids will not even know about that it's a little black girl or a little brown girl. I think they'll think they'll read these lyrics and kind of place themselves inside the story so that it becomes just a diverse story for anyone, mm. no matter the color, no matter the animal. I think it really inspiration to all kids. Oh, yes. And the important part of this story is the little cat found a friend. Yes, that's right. Who likes to fish. <laughs> that's so right. So he has this food supply guaranteed. And that's what friends are for. That's what friends are for, you know? If you can find a friend who can feed you, that's the best. Yeah, absolutely <laughs> the best. While you, while you sit on the dock of the bay. <laughs> <laughs> Nurturing and sustenance. Carla, this song was recorded two weeks before your father died in that horrible plane crash at age 26. Yes. He left this amazing musical legacy at such a young age. How does the Otis Redding Foundation extend your father's beliefs and values? Well, he, you know, he was an advocate proponent of music and arts education. He and my, my mom both were such advocates of that. And through the foundation we established in his honor, he was already preparing summer camps for kids uh, at our ranch uh, outside of Macon, Georgia and Round Oak, Georgia. And so what we do now uh, really continues the voice that he had already put in place in 1966. And we just continue to do what we know he would be doing right now. You know, we in, we've inspired thousands of kids to not everyone can be the, the singer, not everyone can be the superstar, but there are so many element, elements of the entertainment industry that you can be a part of and it's just self-motivation and self-respect for yourself. That's what the foundation does is just empower kids to do their best, whatever they decide to do, while having a little bit of fun and self-expression while doing that. As if he weren't just a brilliant enough musician and performer. On top of that, he showed such deep humanity what a privilege this is to talk with you. And I adore this book. Carla Redding Andrews, Caitlin Shea O'Connor, thank you very much. Oh, well, thank you for having us. And I'm just so honored to be on with Caitlin um, and, and just really think she did an amazing illustration with the book because it's, uh, we, it's fabulous. And as a matter of fact, we'll be distributing it to every third grader in our community just as we did with the Respect book. So we want every kid to have a copy in this community. Wow. May I ask where your community is, Carla? Are you in California? No, no, no. no. We're in Macon, Georgia, which is still, even, even if my dad were alive, we'd still be in Macon, Georgia. We may have a place in California, but he loved Macon. And oh. this community was still, they embrace us as if dad is still walking the, the streets today. And I know he's, he's very proud of his community and would be right here if he were alive. 2,000 miles I roam 
just to make this dock my home. Now I'm just gonna sit at the dock of a bay, watching the tide roll away. Sitting on a dock of a bay, wasting time. Carla Redding Andrews is the daughter of Otis Redding and executive director of the Otis Redding Foundation. She was joined by Atlanta artist Caitlin Shea O'Connor, the illustrator of the new children's book, Sitting on the Dock of the Bay. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll usher in the new month with some fun ideas for Atlanta area events and activities surrounding the July 4th holiday weekend. City Light senior producer is Kim Drogues. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I would absolutely love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Archived interviews and shows are on our website. Just go to wabe.org slash citylights. Thank you for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.